Miss Mackintosh, my darling, chapter 35.2, last part. Sometimes my mother spoke of her with such familiarity, one might suppose that she had seen her only yesterday. This persistent figure with the beetling eyebrows, the eyebrows like feathers upon which the snow had fallen. Though, of course, this was not possible, my mother knew, even when she was entertaining the lively dead. Yet how cordial she would be now if Cousin Hannah should accept her formal invitation. Her announcement that she would be at home, receiving at three minutes after three, until five minutes after three, when she was expecting Madame de Berry with her Persian hound. As cordial as my mother had not been before when she, having no other way of escape, had been perhaps perverse, unnecessarily evasive and diffident, unduly timid when confronted by the spectacular, self-confident friend who had crashed the gates and whom she had resisted, as if she were a plague of fiery locusts, those who have no king. Mr. Spitzer had always fled before that great captain's coming as if she were the specter of his doom, his own annihilation, so he must flee now before she came. Personally, he had always thought the fearful captain of the horse quite gloomy with her project to organize all ladies to rebel, for had they not already done so, creating this unbelievable havoc in men's lives, causing such great disorders that he never stepped on terra firma, without assuming that it was terra incognita? That he never stepped before, tapping with his cane, he tested it to ascertain that it was not that it was no cloud. Perhaps my mother would even understand Cousin Hannah's suffrage message now, as she had not wished to understand it completely then. She having resisted her message, as if she had been a messenger coming from the enemy camp, a messenger coming from afar, coming with evil tidings, as one who told her that she had lost the battle or that her love was dead, killed on the foreign battlefront, killed while guarding the ramparts, killed at some far frontier between life and death. Now she would greet her with no alloy of reserve or doubt, asking her to take off her great plumed hat, as she would never have done in the presence of a lady, for she did not believe in showing inequalities, to be seated, as she would never have done, for she had not had the, for she had not had the time. She had always remained standing as if ready to depart, perhaps at a bugle's ghostly cry, perhaps at a rooster's crow. As the evening sky turned from gray to rose, asking her to remain here for a long winter or for many in endless snowbound winters, when no postman could find the house under the snowbanks or even its glittering towers. Though when she was precariously alive and perhaps in full possession of her senses, she had had no faith to be sure in any afterlife upon this planet or form of creation which should follow after this, none in the harpist plucking his own withered harp strings being his own musical instrument under the flying stars, none in the rustle of faded silks upon a dusty floor, none in the echo of an echo, the whisper of astral bells through still vacant rooms. Perhaps she had had, perhaps she had, had no faith in this life, it was surely well to be reminded again, though her life had been crowded with dangers which had kept her actively alive. Those in the vast suffrage movement raging on all fronts and some which were unknown as mirrors looking out on nothing or vistas seen from the other side of the dead moon. She had had no time for courtly graces, the dance of the hours like garlanded barefoot nymphs in flowing draperies. She could never have taken her place in the pattern of a minuet, slow and graceful, a dance consisting of a shift from one foot to the other, a high step, an act of balancing between the right foot and the left when the weight was shifted from right to left, and the left part of the body was drawn into the right. Nor could she have danced with another partner. Never she appeared in a ballroom, not even if it were crystal. She had escorted, it seemed, no lady to the dance. She was not like Mr. Spitzer, who, though always a portly gentleman, had been in his youth an excellent dancer, taking every step with mincing precision, with calculated airs which had aroused his twin's bewilderment. She was not like my mother, who had been, before she had gone to bed, the most marvelous dancer, 
even her walk having been a slow, elaborate dance under the glassy lights, confusing to persons with whom she had tried to carry on a polite conversation. They had felt that she was easily distracted. She had always seemed to give her attention to those who were not there. For she had walked in circles and semicircles, describing various elegant patterns in her most casual movements, measuring the distance from a blue brocade divan to a gilt and ivory chair, as if this distance were a complicated problem in infinity or in eternity, as if, when she walked from room to room, she walked between two stars which were not coexistent in space. She could not move from one room to room without her intricate choreography and her musical attendant, a blind harpist harping in the fog could not walk down a long corridor without as many preparations as if she were going on a long journey, though doubtless she was going only to a distant drawing-room. And she had frequently asked for her candle-bearers, and for her carriage, her bearskin hat, her robe of leopard-skin, her charcoal foot-warmer, her falconer's gloves embroidered with mystical messages from the living to the dead, or an amulet which it should be found at a far outpost. Or she had asked that the icebreaker should go ahead of her and clear away, break the mirrors, break the ice. Whereas, suffrage veteran, case-hardened and seared by many weathers, the burning light of a star in desert cold and forever whirling snowflakes of hurricanes, had been as courageous as Sherman marching to the sea, or as Napoleon at the gates of Moscow, obsessed by her desires to which my mother was indifferent. Cousin Hannah, unlike my mother, was carried on long Cousin Hannah, unlike my mother, who carried on long conversations with triple-crowned, heron-footed King Canoe, he who, with all his royal powers, not command the waves to stand still, the tides to cease, had had no time for small talk, the adventure of polite conversation, no time for talk of wind and weather and yesterday's cloud formations, the meditation upon the eye of the whirlwind, no time to indulge herself with talk of old wounds which had closed or had never closed, old love affairs which had ended or had never ended, no time for a cup of perfumed tea made of the distilled essences of flowers or a moment of intimate and unexpected revelation, as when one confessed that one was the opposite of what one seemed that all one's life had been a living lie, a monstrous joke, which had baffled one from the beginning, leaving one no peace, that one had always turned against oneself at every point, that one had gone against one's grain and loved what one had denied, that one had loved in secret what one had denied in public. For she could not have been trapped, could not have been taken unaware, thrown off her guard, could not have been persuaded, by any means, when she had still the power of making rational decisions, to confess that, though she had been this old suffrage captain and rider through the storm of years, one carrying a great suffrage banner with rippling golden tassels, she had yearned for marriage, or she had loved a man, or she had yearned for a homunculus a little man, a mannequin, a dwarf, whose head, reached not a, whose head should not reach above the tops of meadow flowers, a gentleman's gentleman to wait on her. It would have seemed at that date quite impossible in the nature of things. She had had no time for domestic bliss, for the suffrage movement had been her true love, her awesome husband, the masculine dream of her life, the abundant resource of her strength. She had been married to no other husband, it was quite sure. She had been married, it seemed, to the suffrage movement, even as if she were a bride, as if the suffrage movement were her husband, her lord and master had carried her away, or she had been this great lord, sky and sword in hand. Her head reached among the stars, this mighty captain who had rescued so many fair ladies in distress, breaking their invisible chains. Hers had been this what other way of life, my mother had certainly believed, admiring her that splendid unity of character which she herself had never achieved, she being, in spite of her great efforts to achieve unusual orientation, this fragmented echo, these fragmentations of partial selves, of splintered mirrors and partial images, vague and elusive thoughts seeming to have a being of their own, 
to act outside of her even when she was sleeping, phantoms crowding over her bed, often with whirrings, rustlings of audible sounds. So many selves, such as the lookout in the crow's nest, the negress in the belfry, the human barometer moaning whenever the wind shifted, the lady in the, the figurehead, the foam, plowing the waves of the disturbed sea. For hers was, indeed, this very life which had altered her. But Cousin Han Hannah's life had not been haunted by Cousin Hannah's buried life, by a contingent existence, the inexpressible, a way of life she had not chosen or had abandoned, another life she might have led. She having followed seemingly only one course, grand, but not simple, the way of suffrage which had stretched before her like the infinite steeplechase stretching between two leaning steeples in eternity, one at either end, both hung with church bells, she having never divided herself, as it had seemed, into opposing factions, warring camps, a battle raging in her own breast, a battle of the right arm against the left, and no one could have believed that she would ever go another way from what, that which she had already gone, riding at the front. Doubtless she had had, she had had, unlike my mother, an external enemy, one who was physical, one who was not discarnate, a creature of clouds and foam, a specter of a good reply, so that she did not need to wage war with herself or declare a period of forgetfulness, a coward's peace with his duplicities, the sleep of infinite compromise, nor is it necessary that she should control her spiritual agitations only by a greater battle, in order to forget herself. She had forgotten herself long ago, perhaps in the great battle of the white eunuchs with the black eunuchs. Ah, uh, she had known a eunuch who had become father, she once told my mother, that it was most surprising what even a poor eunuch might be capable of. Oh, he was a most pitiful fellow indeed, and had been used by a great sheik to guard in supposedly perfect safety, his love, black veil of love. And this poor eunuch, dying for love, had been strangled and left in the desert courtyard. The hens clucked over him. <clears throat> Hers had been rather to judge by the external appearances, and perhaps there were no other appearances, none that, that, none that were not external unless to a blind man. That quality of hearty temper which enabled her to meet the complex difficulties of the opposition with unflinching firmness, with undiminishing vigor even when her strength diminished, with dauntless and increasing spirit when her body faded, with heroic fortitude when she was faced with only gentleness and evasiveness, with that noble rigor of manner which was, and perhaps is, always the outgrowth of the resistance against quavering divinity, even one's own, as doubtless she had feared that if she gave into the tender emotion but once, she would give in forever, be forever lost, and those great battles might as well never have occurred, for she would be vanquished, even by the blow of a wandering snowflake like a lost mirror image wandering in time. And hers was also that contempt of physical hazard, which came from the fact that, forgetting herself, or the claims of her heart, her human heart, for she was not superhuman, she had encountered great dangers than most men know, certainly greater dangers than most women know in this life. Surely she had been without lightness upon the face of this gliding earth. Where had she not gone? Where had she not entered? She had crossed so many boundary lines which had been forbidden during her life had passed through so many gates guarded by minotaurs and dragons and speaking birds. And why should she not cross this, now when there were no signposts, no watchmen in the towers, now when there was no obstacle under the tented sky? Had she not crossed into Mesopotamia? Had she not crossed over into Transjordania and many in Emirates? Did she not know Felix Arabia as many another lady might know her drawing room? From many a frontier between two lands of infinitely reaching desolation, she had been met by bribers with golden coins seeking to induce her to turn back. And she had not been influenced by their suggestions. And she had not been discouraged by great frozen mountain walls, by fathomless abysses, by bottomless pools. 
She had never given in to threats of death or bribery, it, had been, it having been her intention never to do so until the last woman on earth had been rescued from the last man on earth, even should he be only a man in a dream. And her pride would have permitted no angelic compromise with the powers of darkness and of light. Never would she have been actually two wor in two worlds at once. She had wished to, wished to rescue the slave, not only the economic slave, but also the slave of love, to cause a harem revolt. Muzines and lonely towers have wailed like traffic sirens at her approach. She had caused many a flutter and many a dovecote, my mother still proudly remembered, as if the doves were fluttering in lightning flashes. White camels had screamed as if they had suddenly seen the ghost of an old bull. She had caused many a sheik to turn white, white as the bones bleached by the desert sun. Why should she not come now with a loud stampede of elephants? And why should she not now visit my mother? My mother asked. Spent her old age here, where there was a, where there was a gentleman's gentleman. He had a steaming silver teapot to wait on her, to carry her tray. Stand at arms until he heard the ambulance murmuring through dim, creepy streets. Her visits to the sea invaded New England house, and changing throughout the years because it was always changing, even through changes with its crazy porches and balconies and chimneys and window walks lighted like amphibian stars, and intricate mother-of-pearl circular stairways, great lintel traps reaching to mother-of-pearl clouds, helmeted snails and salt pools, rain-drenched gardens and broken shells and fury buds, dandelion heads thin as the deceptive pleiades and earth-settled clouds, constant cry of surf, snow billowing like surf or like a lady's whispering skirts, edged with lace, Fireflies like fragments of dead souls flitting through the purple dusk. Prowls of old ships half buried in the snow-white dunes, moving like the flood. Old figureheads of wooden admirals and queens and caliphs breaking through ghostly waves have been made while she was still alive and in command, an organizer of chaos, the Stygian night, which knew no time and no harmony when she was this great calm of the suffrage movement, sacrificing herself and her energy to the universal suffrage, the battle raging in heaven and on earth. When surely it had seemed that there had, been not, had not been the slightest nuance of another thought which should be in opposition to her faith, that there had been no cloud, that she had entertained no shadow. And why should she have indulged in self-reproach? Yet the extremities of faith in anything might always beget, my mother knew, its opposite, as death might be the parent of love, or love might be the parent of death. And so my mother, through all the empty years, yearned for her, as one might yearn for anyone who was no more, anyone who was less than water, less than fire, less than wind. Anyone who is less than a thought, less than a dream, repeating itself with only those variations which might be expected in the logic of an, Ill, of an illogical, unexpected dream. If a thing was predictable, my mother at that moment ceased to believe in it. She suffered from claustrophobia even when she thought of the moon, the sun, the stars, the pathless places, places where her feet could not take her. The mere idea of, cer idea of certainty would have caused, and indeed had often caused, a panic in her mind. An entire change of scene, shift of wind, toppling mountains, Toppling cloud-topped towers, minarets fade into the sun's gold, moon's gold. A change so complete that, though she accepted it without a breath or sigh, with that breathless wonder of one who was already dead, she was bewildered most by that relic which was most familiar to her, such as this bedroom. She was always quite beautifully obtuse, even as a matter of her habit, taking an opposite view from that taken by other people, as Mr. Spitzer had more than once astringently accused her, with a decisiveness unlike his usual hesitant manner of acknowledging, at all times, two truths, either what should be true. And their day was her night, and their winter was her summer.